When we married, we knew that we would like to adopt in the future, especially Rick, he had a heart for adoption. From a very young age, I couldn't understand how you could have children and they didn't have a dad and mom. So over the 37 years of our marriage, we've adopted 20 children and had three by birth. The Lord brought to us seven disabled children. It was something I hadn't known much about, but grew to just cherish them. In 2004, uh, Janet and I felt the call to move to Mexico and start a children's home called Rancho de los Niños for children with special needs. The other children's homes and orphanages uh, wouldn't accept those children. And so we were able to, to take them in and love on them. We have 26 kids and our mission is to provide a home for children where they know they're welcome, wanted, worthy and loved, where they can find Jesus as their savior and where they can discover the wonderful plan he has for their life. Our motto is a home for every child. When we came to Scottsdale Bible, we knew that there was um, the special ministries that uh, our kids just have ended up loving. What was amazing to us about special ministries was the love and acceptance Amy Daniels and the volunteers had for our kids. We came the first time and we never left. When people look at our lives, since they're a little bit unusual, having adopted so many kids and now uh, running a children's home in Mexico, is that we're just trying to hold on to Jesus' coattails and follow him wherever he goes. And he takes a different path for each one of us. I couldn't do what Jamie does, and uh, maybe he couldn't do what we're doing. But we're all part of that body, and we're working together to further the kingdom of God. One day I was driving to the store, and I said, Lord, if you have a divine appointment for me today, show me what it is. And it was like he whispered in my ear, and he said, I've already given you a divine appointment at your home. You know, take care of those children. That was really comforting to me because it, it kind of becomes like, okay, well, this is my day, and oh, it's not important. Well, it is. It's so important. You know, raising your children is the most important thing that you can do as a parent. I'm Rick Norquist. I'm Janet Norquist. And this is our story. Rick and Janet are really special people. Uh, Rick spends a lot of time in our office helping Amy with uh, special ministries, and it was a real joy to share a bit of their journey with you. And we're going to unpack a little bit of what some of the implications for you and me would be for that. You know, as Rick said, and I loved when he said it, you know, uh, he couldn't do my job, and then you heard him say that I probably couldn't do what they do, uh, but we're all part of one body, and as we're going to talk about today, we're all called to generosity and we're all called to live lives of self-sacrifice as we follow Jesus Christ and so that's what we want to get from Nehemiah 5 today in just a minute. Just so you know um, we have been so blessed in our church with uh, how God has used our special ministries that a significant part of our Compelled by Grace campaign is doubling our space that we've committed on this campus for our special needs adults and children. And so as you even go out today, you'll notice that one of the buildings we're working on is what we call our D building right out back here. 
And as you go out there, the upper part we're going to use for staff offices where they, where I believe they should be in the back of our campus up. Uh, and then you'll notice the bottom on the east side, the, that's all going to be dedicated to special ministries. And we're building all new space for them that, Lord willing, will be completed about the end of May, early June. So it's really exciting how God has used our church uh, in that area. And we, again, you know, experiencing God, we want to see him do that even more and more and more. And that's a lot of what we're trying to do on this campus. Our Cactus Campus and our venue are joining us right now live with uh, our time in the Word. So welcome, guys. And let's all bow together and pray as we uh, open up his Word. God, we thank you for all that you are to us. That as, Lord, we've seen even in our video, that we hang on to Jesus' coattails as we follow you and see you use us in this life as we live the Christ, the Jesus life among others. And so, Father, I pray that as we turn to your word now, that, God, you would indeed give us wisdom and insight that we might understand it rightly and then apply it diligently to our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the church says together, amen. amen. So there are times in life, and I know you have found this already, where just a bunch of little things added together can go a long way in giving us a second wind. So a second wind is not just found in, in the big things in life, but many times it's found in the little kindnesses that when added together can start to buoy somebody's spirit and, and get them revived. I, I know I've talked to you about this before. It's a distant memory, but still a very vivid memory of when I ran my first marathon when I was in college. And though some of you might not know what a marathon race is, it's a 26.2-mile running race. Can you imagine running 26.2 miles? I couldn't, but I did it twice back in college when I was <clears throat> a little bit better shaped. And, and, and I can remember training for months on end for this marathon. And the only marathon in my hometown of Cleveland was called the Cleveland Revco Marathon. And it has to be the most boring marathon in the entire United States of America. Because you start in downtown Cleveland, which isn't sexy, and then you run west, literally in a straight line out to the west suburbs uh, along the main thoroughfare. You run around a little flag and you run 13 miles back into Cleveland, which is depressing as, as it is. But I wanted to run this marathon, so I ran it. And, and at the 20-mile mark, I've talked about this before, I hit what runners call the wall, where after you've run 20 miles at your best pace, your body just starts to shut down. All the reserves that you thought you had are gone, and you just feel like stopping. But it's not something you want to do when you're trying to complete a 26.2-mile race. And so they just tell you, you got to plow through the wall. And if ever perseverance is the name of the game, it's now. But as I plowed through the wall, I found that there were a bunch of small kindnesses a bunch of small things that started to give me my second win. At about the 21-mile mark, there was a little table that the sponsors of the race had set up that had these little Dixie cups full of water. And as I downed the water, I thought, boy, that tastes good. You know, in today's world, it's probably like Evian wine spritzers that they give people in races. But back then, just a, a little cup of water went a long way. And then as I got closer, I was still miles from the finish line. There were crowds that started to form along the road, and, and some of them were clapping, and they looked at me. They didn't even know me from Adam, but they said, way to go, you're almost there. I remember thinking, it's miles till I'm there. 
but thank you because that helps. That helps, that kind of encouragement. And then I kid you not, I can still remember it, the green and white sign that said you were entering Cleveland. I never thought I'd be so glad to enter Cleveland. <laughs> but as I crossed into the city line, I thought, it's getting close. And then finally, more cheering crowds. And then finally, it was a straight line. About a mile down the road, I could see the finish line. It was way down there. But a mile down, I could finish the, see the finish line. And at about the half-mile mark, my best friend Bill, who would be the best man in my wedding, was waiting there at, at about a half-mile to go. And he started to run alongside me. And he looks at me and he says, I never thought you'd finish this race. <laughs> He has the spiritual gift of discouragement. And, but it was just so great to have him with me. And before you know it, I'm, I'm, I'm crossing the finish line with my chest puffed a little bit out, and I'd experience that second wind. And when you think about it, it was all little things. I mean, a Dixie cup of water, a hand clap, a sign, an encouraging word from a stranger, a friend with a smile, and the vision of a finish line. But added together, it went a really long way at giving me my second wind. And you and I both know this. Sometimes it's the little things in life added together, the little kindnesses that can make all the difference. It's true in your family, in your business, in your school, in your friendships, in your sports. And here's the deal, even in our walk with God. So what we're doing in this series is that we're trying to understand what it takes to get a second wind with God. That when you and I need revived, as the old-time spiritualists would say, when we need revived in our spirit, what is it that God's going to do and use to get us revived? And we're using the Old Testament book of Nehemiah as our guide, and we come today to a very interesting chapter that was read for us earlier that is all about this idea of relational kindness that might not seem like a big deal, but added together becomes a big deal in giving us our second win. So as I've been doing every week, let me give you what I see as the main point right up front, and then we're going to unpack it and note its implications for you and I today. So here it is, and that is that when debts are forgiven and generosity rules, a second wind is on the way. That's what you need to hear today. That's the main point of chapter 5, that when debts are forgiven, whether you're the receiving end of that or the giving end of that, and when generosity rules, again, whether you're on the receiving or giving end, for everybody involved, a second wind is on the way. Now, before we get into that, let's get our bearings straight on what's happening in the book of Nehemiah. Because as you might remember, the whole context of the book of Nehemiah is that they are rebuilding the walls and gates around Jerusalem. It's about 445 B.C. Israel's had a very rough 140 years. They have been beaten up and badly bruised. They've been taken over by first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then now the Persians, the very mighty Persian Empire, and then the Greeks will eventually take over the Persians. But now the Persians are in control and they're really running all of the Middle East and Jerusalem has been ransacked. But Nehemiah is a good and godly man. He's the main character in the story. And he's been promoted by the king of Persia, a guy by the name of Artaxerxes. He's been promoted by Artaxerxes to be the governor of Judea, which again is under Persian control, but is where Jerusalem is. And he's even allowing Nehemiah 
to rebuild the walls and the gates around Jerusalem. And some people say, well, big whip, he's rebuilding walls and gates. No, that's really important because it's going to add security and hope to Israel. And even more importantly, it's going to symbolize the rebuilding of their spirituality. You're going to see at the end of this book that once these walls and gates are built, they're praying more, they bring the law and the word back into the believing community. I mean, this is going to go a long way in giving Israel the second wind that she needs to move on as a people of God. And so we left off last week by looking at some of the external problems in chapter 4 that they were facing, some enemies that were from neighboring countries there and how they responded and interesting, as we now turn the page into chapter 5, and isn't this the way life works, now we're going to see the problems that are arising from within. What we're going to call friendly fire, that sometimes uh, problems don't just come from without, but sometimes the threat comes from within. Whether it's your family or your church or your business or whatever, sometimes it's those closest to you that create the problems. And so let's latch on to what's going on in the first 13 verses here of Nehemiah 5 so that we all understand the problem and how they responded to it. And then we're going to look at the implications for our lives. And to understand the first 13 verses, uh, you just need to latch on to four words. Look up here on the screen. Cactus and venue, look up on your screen as you are. Those four words are exploitation, examine, example, and end game. That's really what's going on here in chapter 5. Some people are being exploited. They're going to examine the problem. They're going to set some examples for how to fix the problem, and then they're going to have an end game in which they all agree on the solution. So, so let's understand what's going on here. It begins in verse 1 by saying that there was a great outcry by the people who were working on the wall. So something bad is happening. And it's a threefold problem that's described in the first five verses there. First is that you have big families and not enough food. We got that problem today in certain sectors in society. They had it back then in the entire Israel sector. And that's that they had a lot of kids. They're all working hard to rebuild these walls, but their lives have been destroyed and they don't have enough grain, enough food for people to eat. So that leads to the second problem. And that is that people are mortgaging their land and assets, their houses, in order to get money. But here's where it gets thick. They're mortgaging these to other fellow Jews who do have money. And as they're mortgaging them, they're charging interest, what one commentator calls modern-day loan sharks, in order for them to be able to get money just to buy grain, just for subsistence, in order to live. And then the third problem is, is that they're having to even borrow more money to pay taxes. <laughs> Some of you don't like taxes here in our country. You would have hated Persia. About 20 to 40% right off the top with no deductions, no Schedule A, no tax credits. They weren't that sophisticated. 20 to 40% came off right off the top to go to this wonderful Persian government. And they didn't have money to feed themselves, let alone taxes. But, you know, if you don't pay taxes today, you got to hire a lawyer. If you didn't pay taxes, then you were killed. So they had to make sure that they paid the taxes. So they were borrowing money, again, from fellow Jews to do that. And then a worse problem was happening. In verse 5, it tells us that uh, they were entering into what they called debt slavery to their fellow Jews. Now, in the law, in Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, you can read about it later, the law allowed that if you had loaned money or assets to another fellow Jew, 
that because it was an agrarian culture, a work-oriented culture, that the person who loaned the money could require the children of the person who got the money to work some of that money off. It was called debt slaves. They really weren't slaves, but they would pay off the debt by having your children work. The law allowed that. Even worse, however, is that if your daughter was working in there, then you could even marry into that family. They would have uh, kind of rights of, of marriage. And so it really wasn't good to try to borrow money within Israel because you'd have to enter into as a family this idea of debt slavery. And we have evidence here that that was happening hugely in this dire time of need. They were entering into debt slavery, one Jew to another, and this was creating this great outcry. So this entire scenario leads to a second segment of the story where Nehemiah examines the whole issue. Now, now this is really important, folks. Have you ever been to a crossroads where, where you see a very complicated problem, but you don't know what to do about it? What do you do? Well, we pray, we ask other people, but we also dig deep and ask God to give us wisdom. Very interesting, in verse 7, Nehemiah uses a phrase there that's not used very often in the Bible at all. He says, I took counsel within myself. Isn't that an interesting phrase? I, I took counsel within myself. That word, that phrase literally means to ponder, to contemplate. It pictures a guy going into his private space and just saying, God, give me wisdom on this one. Help me to figure it out. James 1.5 says that if any of us are lacking wisdom, ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given. That's what Nehemiah does here. And as a result of that, he gets clarity. He's really ticked off. It says in verse 6, he's angry. And the two things that he's angry at, you've already heard this, are the interest and the debt slavery. The fact that they're charging each other interest at exorbitant rates, and they're taking each other's kids into debt slavery, and he's going to call this, I think it's in verse 12, not good. Not good. Now here's what you need to know. The law actually forbade a fellow Jew to charge another fellow Jew interest. So, so right there they were breaking the law. The law says that you can charge interest to a foreigner, to somebody outside of Israel, but if you borrowed money from a fellow Jew, you're not allowed to charge them interest. And so right there, they were breaking the law, and then this whole debt slavery thing, even though the law, law allowed it, Nehemiah is going to argue, this is not the time for that. That people are in dire need here, and the last thing we need to do for, for our community is to be taking each other into slavery. So in verse 7, he calls a great assembly. He confronts the people on this, says, you're selling your brothers, you're being sold into slavery. Oh, verse 9, it's not good. And then this leads, very interesting, to what I call the, the example, the third movement in this story. Now look at verse 10 again, if you have a Bible in front of you. Nehemiah confesses that he and his family have made loans. Interesting, they've made loans themselves, but the connotation being no interest. And so he says, first of all, let's just abandon this whole interest thing. You're not following the law, it's wrong, it's sinful, get away from interest. That will go a long way in freeing people up. But then, interesting, in verse 11... He goes even further and he essentially says, let's just return all the mortgaged assets and all the interest money that we've previously collected. Now, isn't that interesting? So, so he doesn't say, let's just not exact any more interest. But he's saying, you know, let's call this the seventh year. Let's call this a year of returning assets, even though it hadn't been seven years. Let's call this the year of forgiving all debts. 
let's call this a year of jubilee, where everything's returned, and if you've even exacted any interest from before, let's return that as well. So the call of Nehemiah, don't miss this, is to forgive debts and to be generous. Nehemiah sets the tone through his own example and calls, calls them to rise above the conventions of the day, even what the law allows, and allow human kindness to win the day. And again, all in the context, as we're seeing in this book, on how to get a second win. You're going to want to hang on to that. Generosity and forgiveness tied to a second win. And then we have the end game. In verse 12, it says that the response of the wealthy nobles and the leaders was this, and I quote, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. But you got to remember, these were some of the same people that were refusing to work on the wall, so Nehemiah doesn't trust them any further than he can throw them. And so he does two things. Isn't this interesting? He, he first calls the priest, and he says, swear before the priest you're going to do this. Wow. Like if somebody calls me to their house and says, hey, pastor, I want them to swear before you, I'd be, well, this is ominous. This is sobering. But then Nehemiah does a second thing that's really sobering. He does, he does what one commentator calls the symbol of a curse. And he looks at these wealthy nobles and he takes his tunic, his outer robe, and he starts to shake it. And he says, may God shake you if you don't do what you have promised. How would you like it if a holy man put that curse on you? I, I don't think you would like it, and they didn't either, because I think it's kind of comical. In verse 12, it says their response was, amen and praise the Lord. That's what it says. It says, amen, and we praise the Lord. And I thought, well, you better. I mean, and then it ends by saying, and the people did as they had promised. Please don't miss what's going on here, guys. It's a moment in time for Nehemiah and the community of faith. I mean, you have to believe that when all this came down, that it was a huge blessing for the faith community. It was huge because debts were being forgiven, resource ones, but I think it also means forgiveness in general. And then generosity was ruling the day. And you and I both know that when people are released and freed up from those types of things, it goes a long way in allowing people to breathe a sigh of relief, to start over with a new lease on life, and to get a second win. And as we're going to talk about more in a second as well, there's also a blessing for the one who releases, for the one who is generous. Because Jesus wants to pry our hands off of all these things that we tend to cling to too closely. And when we release them, there's a second win for us as well. So it's a win-win for everybody. And it's the core of the Christian way of life. I mean, you and I both know, God has forgiven us. He has shown us tremendous grace and generosity in giving us his son and giving us his spirit and giving us his word. And now God desires us to do the same for those around us. It's what it means to be a Christian through our forgiveness and generosity. And so I love how Eugene Peterson says it in his book, Tell It Slant. I know I've given you this quote before, but I promise you, you forgot it. So look up here on the screen. Peterson says this. He says, muckraking is not gospel work. Witch hunting is not gospel work. Shaming the outcast is not gospel work. Forgiving is gospel work. Amen. It's really true. You know, the Christian church, sadly, has a history at times where we're muckraking and we're witch hunting and we're shaming people left and right. And none of that is gospel work. 
Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And it's true. And it's our kindness that's going to win the day with those around us. Kindness seen in generosity. And all I can tell you is that when I've experienced these things on a human level, from the earliest days I can remember being a little guy, it really does work. I know I've told you this story before, but it just is so marked in my mind. I can remember the first time I was released from a debt, released from a bonehead decision that I made, and and how freeing it was and how far it went to helping me be mature. I was in junior high. We were living in a small town outside of Cleveland called Chagrin Falls, where I'm from. And to make money in junior high, I had a paper route. You guys remember paper routes where little boys would deliver your paper? They don't let them do it anymore, which is sad, but that's what I did. So I'd get up at 5 o'clock every morning, 5 a.m., I'd walk across my little small town where I'd collect 30 papers that were dropped off by the plane dealer. That was the paper, the plane dealer guy. And I'd deliver 30 papers to homes across town, and then I'd walk back. And I laugh right now when we're talking about how cold it is in the Midwest. You know, everybody's talking about that. I mean, my dad was brutal. My dad had to deal with me that if the morning temperature was below zero, not wind chill, the actual temperature, he would drive me. But if it was one degree, get your butt out there and deliver newspapers. And so I can remember when you used to have to call to get the weather because you didn't have the internet. So I'd call on the phone and be like, oh, please, please, please. And they go, the temperature is three degrees. I'd be like, darn and I'd be going out to deliver these papers. Now, I remember how that worked. I was a little businessman at that time. I, uh, I paid 11 cents to the plain dealer to buy each of these 30 newspapers, and I'd sell them for 15 cents. I made a four-cent profit on each paper, about a buck 20 a week. But I cleaned up on Sunday, and Sunday I'd buy the papers because it was bigger for 37 cents, and I'd sell them for 50 cents. So I was making three, four bucks a week on this paper route back in 1970 dollars. But here's where it gets thick, is that is that I'd collect the money once a week, all the money from my customers, and most of it I would owe to who I called the plain dealer guy. It was actually a big guy named Mr. Gelati. And once a month, Mr. Gelati, the godfather of the plain dealer, would come by, doesn't it sound like that? And he'd come by and he was big and he was serious, and he would collect you know, 90% of the money that I collected, which I owed to the plain dealer. After about two years of this one month, I did the unconscionable thing. I spent all the money I collected, all of it. I just spent it all. And and he was coming on a Saturday afternoon, and I can still remember sitting on my side porch, and I was just, I was crying. I was a junior high kid, and I'm just in tears. My dad comes out, and he goes, what's going on? And I just confessed. I just, you know, weeped in sackcloth and ashes and just confessed what I did. (laughs) And he looked at me, and he didn't say a word. He just walked inside. And he came back out with his checkbook, and he said, Mr. July is going to be here in a few minutes, and he wrote a check for the entire amount. And I was so grateful. I looked at him, I said, Dad, I I promise you I'll pay back every cent of this. And he looked at me, and he said, no, you won't. (laughs) He said, it's going to take you months, months to save this kind of money, and it'll probably take the wind out of your sails doing so, and then you'll probably quit. He said, but your mom and I don't want you to quit, so let's just call it clean. And he said, don't do it again. I did it once again about a year later. I did. And, and, and my dad bailed me out again a year later. But I got to tell you, I'm now 50 years old, and I don't have credit card debt. And I never have. I run a very tight ship financially in my own house. I don't spend what's not mine. 
and, and though part of that's because I've gone through Burkett stuff and Crown Ministry and now who's that, Ramsey, that, that guy, and, and you know, I, I've done that. But I think part of it too is the lesson I learned from my dad and, and also the powerful lesson of grace. Don't miss that. I mean, some would argue, well, should he have let you off the hook? I don't know. It's a wisdom decision at the time, isn't it? But the reality is I know what that did for my soul. And that taught me a level of grace, a level of kindness, a level of generosity that I've carried with me all of my life. Don't ever forget this, guys. When debts are forgiven and generosity rules, a second wind is on the way. So I have to believe that there's somebody in your life right now, cactus and venue, somebody in your life right now that, that, that could use a second wind and maybe a forgiveness from you, whether it's a tangible debt or just a wrong that they committed against you. Or maybe just some generosity. Again, it doesn't even always have to be resources. Remember my marathon race? The generosity of an encouraging word, a hand clap, something that you invest in their lives. I'm telling you, it goes a long way. Now, believe it or not, we're not quite yet finished with the life-giving lessons of chapter 5. Because there is one more thing that this chapter teaches us about this whole area of forgiveness and generosity. And I'm just going to warn you right now, this one is very challenging and it cuts across the grain of how our current culture thinks about generosity but it's clear when you see it in Nehemiah 5 so let me give you what I call our core point this morning and then we're going to flesh this out here it is and that is that generosity truly counts when it costs you something boy you're going to be challenged by this one generosity is labeled generosity by God primarily when it costs you something. That's what we're going to see here. And i got to tell you, folks, this point goes against the grain of our American thinking that, that, that basically says that generosity is more about the size of the gift rather than the cost to the giver, right? I, I mean, if you got a billionaire in America who gives five million bucks to the Red Cross, we go, whoa, isn't that generous? That's what we say. But the Bible would probably say, well, not really, because if somebody gets .001 of their net worth away, even though it might be a large amount, big whip. That's in the margins in the Bible. It just doesn't matter. I mean, the reality is, is that God is more concerned because he loves you. And he's concerned about your second win as well as using your generosity. He's more concerned that our generosity costs us something. How do we know this is true? How many of you ever heard of the widow's might? Raise your hand if you heard of the widow's might. Many of us. It's a story in the New Testament, a true story, in which Jesus saw a widow who had almost no money go into the church offering and give her little widow's might, and, 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 and she gave money. And Jesus essentially labeled that woman extremely generous, even though her gift wasn't all that much and it wasn't going to make the who's who among Palestinian givers of that year. But then, right on the coattails of that, uh, Jesus would look at the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, and he would say that even though you guys tithed 10%, which would have been a pretty big amount because religious leaders did pretty well back then, even though you guys tithed 10%, Jesus said, you're a bunch of brood of vipers and you're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. Can you imagine being called that by Jesus? A brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs, which means you're good on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. Now, how do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of Jesus uplifting that woman's generosity, which wasn't all that much in an amount, but then looking at a bigger amount among the Pharisees and saying, big deal. See, Jesus is more concerned 
about the cost to us than even the amount that's given. And that turns our current culture upside down. I want you to see this in Nehemiah here. I don't know if you caught it or not, but in the closing words of Nehemiah, verses 14 to 19, he does something here by letting us into his personal life and his personal pocketbook that really is profound. Let me read verses 14 to 19 for you one last time because it's really important that we see the storyline here and then we'll quickly make sense of this. Nehemiah says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, now here it is, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Two things. Put them both up here on the screen, guys, if you could. Uh, two things that you're going to want to notice here. One is that Nehemiah, as the governor, lived just like everybody else. Isn't that amazing? I, I mean, governors live in mansions. Governors drive nice cars. Governors uh, live very differently than the people, not Nehemiah. He worked on the wall. He didn't acquire any land. He lived just like everybody else. But why did he have to do that? Because he also sacrificed in his generosity and that's what the Bible called generosity. You see, Nehemiah didn't take the food allowance that could, he could have taken. Back then, they didn't have you know, the stock market and all these other things we have today. It wasn't even as much of a cash system. They used silver and gold as their currency. And so Nehemiah, they paid a lot of debts in food. And so Nehemiah could have exacted a food allowance from all the Israelites, but he didn't take one crumb. Why? Because he didn't have it. And, and, and so even if he tried to demand it, it probably wasn't going to be there. But he said, let's just release everybody from that one. And then he could have demanded 40 shekels of silver as his daily allowance as the governor. I don't know if any of you care, but I did the math. We know how much a shekel weighs. We know how much silver is worth today. 40 shekels of silver would be about $400 a day today, which is a pretty good penny today, a vast amount of money back then. So Nehemiah could have demanded that from all the people there as collected, and he didn't take a dime from them. Please notice, he sacrificed greatly, and it was in that sacrifice, this is what you need to see, that the Bible labels generosity. In verse 18, it actually says that these things all came at my expense. It came from his own personal pocketbook. And you see, commentators wrestle with what Nehemiah is doing here. Why did he include this? I mean, he could have ended the whole chapter in verse 13. He could have just said, hey, we all got generous and we all forgave debts. Isn't that wonderful? Chapter 6. But he didn't. He included this little biographical thing at the end, not to brag, not to say, look at me and look at how godly I am, but to act as an example, a living picture of what generosity looks like. Don't miss this. That when generosity cuts into your lifestyle, 
When generosity calls you to maybe have to go without, to live in a different way, that's what God uses to build his kingdom. That's what God uses to give others and you a second win. Because here's what we know about material possessions, and I know Scottsdale doesn't like to hear this, but it's true. And that is to the degree that we cling to possessions and use them as our basis for security and to make us feel good and all this other stuff. God says, you don't get it. I'm that for you. I'm the one that you're supposed to find your security and hope in. And, and I'm not talking about being irresponsible, but it's when we release those things generously to those in need around us, to organizations in need around us that are helping other people. It's when we let go and release them that God does something in you. It's when generosity impinges upon our lifestyle that the Bible applauds, heaven applauds, and says, now that's generous. And so I think there's something in this for you and me today. I think there's something in uh, this challenge that you and I need to heed if we're at all serious about following Jesus and being more like the widow, not the religious leaders, when it comes to our lives. This is a true story. You're going to love this. This is true. Uh, in the peer-reviewed journal Neuroscience last fall, I'm sorry, Neurocase last fall, a medical journal that writes about neurological diseases and their effects, they told the true story of a 49-year-old Brazilian man who had suffered a moderate stroke recently that affected the part of his brain that controls egoism versus altruism. The part of the brain that controls the focus on self versus the focus on others. And as a result of this moderate stroke, this man had a rather bizarre change to his personality that researchers would label, and I'm not reading this, and I quote, pathological generosity. That's what happened to this guy's personality. He became what they called pathologically generous. So an article describing this study says this. Look up here on the screen. This is a direct quote. It says his willingness to give liberally to others, including people he barely knew, dramatically changed his life. He would spend his money on children he met on the street buying soda, candies, and food. The stroke apparently left him with excessive and persistent generosity. It even got so bad that his wife had to intervene and start to run the family finances or they were going to end up in the poorhouse. All as a result of a stroke. So here's how sick I am in my thinking. I'm thinking when I read this, I hope some of you have a stroke. Now, you know I'm kind of kidding about that, right? I really don't. But if it would take a stroke to get some of us to just lighten up a little bit and start to be a little bit more generous, then so be it. But here's what I really hope at the end of the day. I hope you just make a decision based upon God's word and his call to you and what he knows is good for your soul to be a little bit pathologically generous in your life. Because I'm really not sure we can be too generous. I... Uh, I had a rough conversation on the phone with somebody a while back in which they were kind of, they were just coming at me about stuff. And I, and I get it. I mean, pastors have a target on their back. But I, I don't like being an emotional pincushion for people. And, and so I, I really do. I struggle with that. And, 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 and so it's, you know, I'm a, I don't know if you guys know, I, I can be an assertive personality. So my wife tells me, every time I leave the house, she'll literally yell. She'll say, be nice. I'm like, okay, I get it. You know, and so I can be that way. So people... People come at me at their own risk, depending on 
on how godly I am in that moment. And so, you know, th this woman was just saying very unfair things to me, and she was upset, and I get it. And, and, and so I just prayed. I prayed, oh, God, help me to be kind. Help me to be gentle. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not demand its own way. I mean, I'm just going through the scriptures I know, and I, and, and I responded, I think, very godly, very godly. And uh, I got off the phone, and, and I was just a little bit shaken. And so I walked into a fellow pastor's office, and I, I just said, man, I just got a call. And, you know, I just said, I, I, and I said this. I said, I think I was too kind. <laughs> I said, I think I was too kind. And I love what he said. He looked at me and said, I don't think it's possible to be too kind. <laughs> he said, I think you probably did just fine. See, I think he's right. I think that... Um, Today, with what people need from us, I'm not sure it's possible to be too kind or even too generous. I'm not sure it's possible to be pathologically generous. I guess it is if you had a stroke. But we could use a lot more generosity. Heard a great story, uh, read a great story from the Associate Press a few years back about a couple in Michigan that were attending a Vineyard Christian Fellowship, a young couple. And as only young couples could do, they were really idealistic and they wanted to do something to, to, to benefit their, 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 their city with their marriage. So they went to their parents and they said, you know, we're planning on spending all this money for our wedding and for our, 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 our reception, and we're going to have the wedding at the church, and that's essentially free. So could we take the money that we're all going to spend, I love how we all, meaning you, we're going to spend on our, on our reception, and instead of doing a reception, we'd just like to buy as many pounds of food as we can, and for the reception, we would like to get everybody and all our guests to have a big food drive in the, in the, in the parking lot of the ministry and hand out food to poor people. So on the day of the wedding, they had bought 5,000 pounds of food, 5,000 pounds. And right after they said, I do, the groom put on a white apron that said groom. The bride put on a white apron that said bride. And they went out to the parking lot with all their guests. And over 100 families from the community showed up, needy families, and they gave big food boxes as their wedding reception. See, I don't know about you. Some people would say that's pathologically generous. I'd say that's biblical. And I'd say that's exactly what God wants us to do. See, here's what I know is true about your life. I, I know that you have opportunity, both in your circumstances, as well as, might I be so bold to say, in your lifestyle, to be a bit more generous. I, I found this hilarious, actually. I, I laugh at kind of the weirdest of things, but in my study this week, when I was doing a study on generosity, I ran across a, a, a compilation of legitimate statistics from various sources on how much Americans spend on non-essentials. You're going to love this. Uh, in, in the year 2011, Americans spent $604 billion going out to eat. When I read that, I thought, how can we spend $604 billion on eating out? And then I, I Googled how many restaurants are in Phoenix. You ready for this one? 2,500. And, and, and how many restaurants in Scottsdale? Just shy of 1,000. So 3,500 restaurants. I did the math. I'd have to eat out breakfast, lunch, and dinner for 10 years to just visit every restaurant in this city. $604 billion. This one's kind of uh, sobering. In 2010, Americans spent $48.3 billion on pets between the cost of the doggone animal and then food, supplies, medicine, vet care. We spent $48.3 billion on our pets. We spent $20.2 billion on video and computer games, $18.8 billion on DVDs, Blu-rays, and movie downloads. This one I thought was hilarious. In 2009, we spent $5.9 billion on weight loss products and programs. I think that's tied to the eating out one, if you ask me. <laughs> so I thought we could kill two birds with one stone right there. Eat out less, you don't need like whatever that weight loss thing is. 
And, and then this one was funny too. In 2009, we spent $315 million as a nation on stress management programs. I thought, I can solve that one. Get generous. Get generous. Your stress is going to go down. You don't have to hold on to all these things you're holding on to. God is right. Now, again, I don't share this to you to shame you. I really don't. I share this with you just to show the ludicrous nature at times of our American lifestyle and that all of us have some room. So I don't think it was an accident. I think it was God's guidance that on Friday I'm finishing up my sermon and I go to prepare my taxes because the tax guy wants them. And I'm doing my taxes and I'm doing my Schedule A and I'm looking at all the places that Kim and I gave to in 2012 or 2013. And in one sense, I'm not going to tell you what we gave because that wouldn't be right, but but, but let me just say, compared to many other Americans, when I look at what Kim and I gave away, you know, I kind of puff my chest out and go, you know, yeah, I'm risking an audit here. They're not going to believe it, you know, and all this other stuff. And, and, and then when I look at what we could actually really do, when I, when I hear the call of Nehemiah 5 and I look at what Kim and I spent on a lot of other stuff, I go, oh, Jamie, you could do so much more. You could do so much more. And actually said to the Lord in, in 2014, I want to do more. But, but you see, the more is going to come by cutting into my non-essential lifestyle. Maybe, as we saw with Rick and Janet, maybe even our essential lifestyle. But, but isn't that what God wants? Because that generosity, that forgiving, goes a long way, a long way in bringing a second wind to all involved. I want to wrap up with this story and with this thought. Uh, how many of you ever heard of Rick Warren, the pastor over in California? Raise your hand. Most of you had. He sold 25 million books called The Purpose Driven Life. And he's somewhat controversial for some people. I get that. But one thing you can't deny about Rick Warren, you've got to laugh at this, he's got a huge vision for his church and for the kingdom. Uh, he, sent, he has sent to date over 7,500 people from his church on short-term mission trips. 7,500 but we send about 350 people a year on short-term mission trips. And, I mean, 7,500 is a lot of people. He's adopted an entire country in Africa. Adopted, I mean, who adopts an entire country? But we do two villages in Tanzania. He, he adopted Rwanda and developed this peace plan to somehow change the entire fabric of Rwanda. That's a big vision. I don't know if you heard of this as of late. He, he, he developed his own Daniel plan, which is a diet based upon the book of Daniel. And he challenged his whole church to a diet. And to date, his entire church has lost a combined total of 250,000 pounds. And it's true. And it's hilarious because he said the idea came to him when in one single day they were baptizing 858 new converts, 858, and he was baptizing the people. He thought, my, these people are heavy. And... <laughs> And he's baptizing all this. And then he looked down and he said, you know, and I'm kind of leading the way. And, you know, maybe we all need to go on a diet. I mean, you just got to love this guy's vision. You might not agree with him on the particulars, but the guy dreams big and he loves God in his church. A few years back when he was being interviewed about all of this, the interviewer asked him, can all this really make a difference? I mean, can one man or one church or one network or even one nation really heal the hurts of the world? And in a very sober moment, after thinking about it for a few seconds, he responded this way. He said that at the end of his life, when his body stopped, stopped working, and he goes to be with Jesus, and they bury him in the ground, and they place a tombstone by his grave, he said, I only want four words on my tombstone. At least he tried. And I thought, what a great four words to have on your tombstone. 
At least he tried. See, there's a lot of people around you right now that need you to try. God needs you to try. We are so blessed as a people. We are. I, I mean, I thank God every day for the blessings I have, and I hope you do too. Part of the reason that God blesses is so that we might be a blessing. He has that in mind. He has blessed you so that you might be a blessing. We all can do a bit more. Allow generosity to win the day. Allow forgiveness to win the day. Allow it even to cut a bit into your life and see what God does with that in giving you and others a second win. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for all the blessings that you have given us. We are really grateful for that. And Lord, we know that to him who's been given much, much will be demanded. Jesus taught us that, that there are high expectations for those of us who have been given a lot. And so, Lord, I pray that as we think about the implications of Nehemiah 5 for our lives, I pray that we would decide to be more Nehemiah-like, that we would join the rank and file, Lord, of those around us and, and live like them, and that, Father, we would also be the type of men and women who don't demand from others but give to others, even in such a way that it might cost us something. God, help us to apply that. As we do, Lord, we want to draw closer to you. We love you. We want to find our sufficiency and satisfaction in you. So help us to do that, we pray. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and his very precious name. And we say together as a church, amen. God bless you. We'll see you all next time.